You are now listening to the June 13th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Story of Kings, Sermon, and Praying for the Next Generation. First, let's begin with Story of Kings. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. This is Brian Winston from Story of Kings. Today, we will consider the stories from 2 Samuel chapters 6 and 7 and 1 Chronicles chapter 15, verse 25, on to the end of chapter 17. The story involves the Ark of the Covenant returning to Jerusalem, and it illustrates how King David facilitated the return. As we shared last time, David really wanted to bring the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. To carry out the task, he gathered 30,000 soldiers. At that time, the Ark was located in Abinadab's house in Kiriath-Jerim. King David and the soldiers then went there to retrieve the Ark. I can only imagine how elated David must have been once he arrived there and was able to behold the Ark in his visual. Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were overseeing the task of transporting the ark. They took the ark of the covenant and placed it on a new cart driven by the oxen. Ahio was walking ahead of the cart, and David and the rest of the Israelites followed behind. They were praising the Lord with all kinds of musical instruments. They were so happy to be bringing the ark of the covenant back to Jerusalem. But then something unexpected happened. The procession had just arrived at the threshing floor of Nacon. The oxen stumbled, and the Ark of the Covenant almost fell off the cart. To prevent it from falling, Uzzah reached out his hand and grabbed hold of the Ark of the Covenant. Then the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, and he died there by the Ark of the Covenant. Now you may wonder why God became angry. During the time of Moses, God taught the Israelites a lot of things. Regarding the Ark, He taught them how to make it, how to maintain it, and how to move it. Yes, God had given the Israelites specific instructions on how to move the ark, because it is holy. For instance, they were supposed to move it on their shoulders, and only the Kohathite priests were allowed to move the ark according to Numbers chapter 4. Apparently, in his zeal to bring the ark back to Jerusalem, David did not do due diligence on the proper way to move the ark. He ended up not following God's instructions on how to move the Ark of the Covenant, and God became very angry. David realized his mistake when he saw what happened to Uzzah. He immediately stopped moving the Ark and took it aside and left it at the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. Time flew, and it had already been three months since the Ark of the Covenant was left at the house of Obed-Edom. On account of the Ark of the Covenant... God blessed the house of Obed-Edom. The news got to David, and when he heard about how God was blessing Obed-Edom, he realized God had forgiven him for his mistake. He was glad, so he again made plans to bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. Except this time, he would do it right. As instructed by God, the Levites and the priests moved the Ark on their shoulders. But they were much more cautious this time. They moved six steps first, 
but nothing happened. No one died. David was elated and thanked God by sacrificing a bull and a fattened calf. Try to imagine the scene as the Ark of the Covenant was coming into the city of David. The whole city was rumbling in a festive atmosphere, and David in particular was dancing all over the place. All the Israelites sounded the trumpet and shouted together. Once the Ark of the Covenant was in the city, David placed it inside the tent that he had prepared and then offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. Standing before the people of Israel, he blessed them in the name of the Lord. This song that he sang when he blessed his people appears in Psalm 132. After blessing the people of Israel, David returned to his palace to bless his family. Then he received an unexpected pushback from Michael, Saul's daughter. She spoke sarcastically about David's dancing, and David became unhappy about her lack of understanding. From 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 20, it reads, But when David returned to bless his household, Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel distinguished himself today. He uncovered himself today in the eyes of his servants' maids as one of the foolish ones shamelessly uncovers himself. When Michael saw how David danced like a child in front of his people, she despised him in her heart. Then David explained to Michael that it was before God that he danced, God who appointed him ruler over the people of Israel. And he said that he would continue to dance and not worry about humiliating himself if it made God happy. As you might guess, from this point on, the relationship between David and Michael became distant. The Bible says Michael could not bear any more children for the rest of her life. Israel became stable politically and religiously once the Ark of the Covenant settled in Jerusalem. As he was putting his house in order, David saw how he was living in a beautiful palace when the Ark of the Covenant was in a tent. So David realized he should build a house for God. That would be a great project. When prophet Nathan heard about it, he initially told David to do all that was in his mind because God was with him. But God appeared to Nathan in his dream that night. Let's read from the words of 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 5-9. to Go and say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Are you the one who should build me a house to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent, even in a tabernacle. Wherever I have gone with all the sons of Israel, did I speak a word with one of the tribes of Israel, which I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name, like the names of the great men who are on the earth. God caused David to realize that he was not in charge, God was. When David said he would build a house for God, God helped him understand how he was the one who takes care of Israel and not the other way around. 
And through verses 10 through 17 in the same chapter, God promised David that he would make Israel strong through him and his son will build a house in God's name. And God also promised David that his kingdom would endure forever. When David heard God's promises through Nathan, he was deeply moved by God's love and prayed to God with praises. This concludes our story for today. I'll see you again next time from Story of Kings. Thank you for listening and goodbye.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor David Platt of Radical. Today's topic is A People Called by the Grace of God. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor David. These passages in 1 Corinthians 1. Because it's a letter that was written in the first century to the church in Corinth. Corinth was the largest, most cosmopolitan city in Greece at the time. It was a center of travel and trade, attracted all kinds of different people with different occupations from different ethnicities. It was like a melting pot. And it was filled with all kinds of idolatry and immorality. All kinds of different gods were being worshipped in Corinth. And then all kinds of immorality was being practiced, particularly sexual immorality. So much so that the term, they coined the term Corinthianized to describe influencing someone to become sexually immoral. High above the city was the temple of Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love. And over a thousand temple prostitutes would come down every night into the city to practice their trade. Sexual sin between men and women, men and men, women and women. And Paul had gone to Corinth. He'd shared the gospel and at first was really discouraged, even frightened because of threats against him. He was about to leave until Jesus came to him one night in a vision. Acts 18 tells us about this, where Jesus said to Paul, Paul, don't be afraid. Keep on speaking the gospel. Don't be silent because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed there for about a year and a half and people came to Christ and church was born. But you can only imagine the challenges that arose for the church in Corinth amidst the culture of Corinth. And what happened is before long, so much in the church was being overtaken by so much of the culture. This constant desire for power and wealth in the city led to division and selfishness in the church. And the sexual immorality of the culture was overtaking the church. One writer said, the problem was not that the church was in Corinth, but that too much of Corinth was in the church. So what we have here is a letter written by Paul to the church at Corinth to remind them who they are and how God has called them to be a distinct community, displaying God's grace and truth amidst this culture around them. So you might be thinking, why would I get out of bed on a Sunday, come to a gathering where we're reading a letter to people written 2,000 years ago? And here's the answer. Because these words from God don't just apply to people 2,000 years ago. They apply directly to your life and my life and our life together today because we live in an extremely cosmopolitan city that brings together all kinds of different people from different ethnicities, over a hundred of them represented in this church today. And there are so many things that we love about this city. But let me ask you a question. Is there any evidence of idolatry in our city? Are there any gods that are being worshiped in greater Washington, D.C. Money, power, politics, position, status, sexual expression, sports, success. Like, do you ever feel any pressure in your life to work harder, smarter, better, to get more position, more money, more status, more power, more influence in Washington? Students, do you ever feel any pressure to get certain grades, achieve certain accolades, keep up with others so that you can get into a certain college or get a certain job? Do any of you as parents ever feel like you're running back and forth across the city 
from this school to that sport to this activity to make sure your child doesn't miss out. We're running after everything our culture says is important. And not all things, things are bad by any means. A lot of these things are good. But none of them are God. And Washington culture, mark it down, is not encouraging you or me to spend all of our time or our kids' time running after God and His Word. We and our kids spend hours on screens and doing all kinds of things our culture says are important, but relative seconds with God and His Word. As His church, even as we try in the days to come to see every member of this church in a smaller church group. I know a lot of people think, I don't have time for that. But we all make time for what's important. So I guess the question is, what's going to be more important to us? What the world says is important or what God's word says is important? Maybe another way to put the question is, who or what are we going to worship? And not just idolatry. Think about the sexual immorality in Corinth and just ask the question, is there any sexual confusion in our culture today? And is it possible for sexual confusion in the culture to creep into the church? One writer talked about how Christians in Corinth, if they believed what the Bible said about sexuality, they were labeled either strange, just kind of out there, or offensive to the culture. And I think we all know that in our culture, in our country today, and living right here in the capital of it, we have experienced a rapid shift in the moral landscape such that views that followers of Jesus held 10 years ago are now labeled not just as strange or offensive, but actually as dangerous. So what does God's word say in the middle of all this? Do you see it? Like this book has incredible implications for us as the church in our culture. So here's how I would summarize all this as we start this series through 1 Corinthians. This is the top of your notes. As a relatively diverse church in a rapidly shifting culture. So that's us. So three questions that summarize what 1 Corinthians is going to answer for us. One, how do we unite around Jesus in the church when there's so much division in our culture? So from the very first chapter of 1 Corinthians, we're going to see it today, that there were factions in the church at Corinth, different people divided into different camps around different leaders, and it was really dangerous for the church. How do we unite around Jesus and the church when there's so much division in our culture? If we don't ask and answer that question, we will inevitably divide, split, go different ways in the church. And how do we faithfully follow Jesus as the church when his word is so counter to our culture? So in the weeks ahead, 1 Corinthians will show us what God says about sexuality, marriage, singleness, divorce, money, discipline, excommunication. I'll go ahead and tell you everything we see will be counter to the way our culture thinks and works. So we'll be faced with the question, are we going to trust and follow God's word or are we going to trust and follow the world? So how do we faithfully follow Jesus amidst all the idols and culture around us from money to power, to success, to sports, to status, to position, all this running around after all this. So how do we make our lives count for what matters most? How do we spend our time and our money and our resources on what matters most? That's a question I think we all want to ask. We don't want to waste our lives on that which doesn't matter. And not just our lives. So third question, how do we love like Jesus from the church when so many people need the gospel across our culture? 
Because the answer to a rapidly shifting culture is not to isolate ourselves and hibernation from the culture. No, we live in our culture, in this city, to show the love of Jesus to people all across the city. That's what the gospel means. It means good news. So for those of you yet a Christian, not yet a follower of Jesus, the bad news is that we are all sinners, every one of us. We've turned away from God in our lives. Looks different in each of our lives. We've all sinned against God. We're all separated from God by our sin. And if we die in this state of separation, we will experience God's judgment for our sin forever. That's the bad news. But the good news is that God loves us. He's not left us alone. God has come to us in the person of Jesus. Jesus lived a life, perfect life with no sin. And then even though he had no sin to die For he chose to die on a cross to pay the price for your sin and my sin. And then three days later, he rose from the grave in victory over sin and death so that anyone, anywhere who trusts in Jesus will be forgiven of all their sin and reconciled to relationship with God forever. And this changes everything because now you and I are free from the need to look to money or power or position or status or sports or sexual expression to satisfy us because the capital G God of the universe loves us and has promised to satisfy our souls forever. We are a radically free people. And that's good news. We want to spread from the church across our culture so that people can know God when the little G gods and idols of this world inevitably let them down. So let's do this. Let's start in 1 Corinthians 1 today. And I went back and forth with how to approach today. One option is just to walk through an overview of the whole chapter, which we may do in some weeks. But this Bible reading plan is set up to encourage you to meditate on a smaller passage each day. And I want to help you know how to do that, particularly here in the start of this series. So what I've done is I've taken the first three verses of 1 Corinthians 1, put them there in your notes, and I want to lead you today to do what we've done with different psalms the past 40 days. I want us just to meditate on these three verses. And you might say, only three? Or after reading them, you might think, these three? I mean, there's not a lot here. It's just like a hello in the beginning of a letter. But I want to show you, there is so much here. In fact, we're not even going to be able to get to everything in these three verses. So so I want us to read this passage from God's Word out loud together. And then I want to give you just a couple of minutes to make some notes, observations on it, right where you're sitting. So let's start by reading this together. We'll do it out loud across 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Let's say them together. Called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, let's pray. God, we pray that the next few minutes, individually and then together, you would open our eyes to understand what your word is saying, and that you would apply your word to each heart, life represented in this gathering right now. I pray that you would do this supernatural work among us by your spirit through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. 
All right, so take just a couple of minutes, like two or three minutes, make some notes on what sticks out in the passage. What is it teaching us about God, about ourselves, about Jesus, about the world? And just make a couple notes, and then I'll bring us back together. Go for it. All right, feel free to continue making notes here and there. We want to start to bring us back together. And just, just you know, I don't even think we're going to get time to uh, write out some of the things later with the maps, but let me encourage you, like, maybe... Your time with the Lord tomorrow, start where we leave off today and just write down some of these things, especially since the passage for tomorrow is these verses. So let's dive in together. Start in verse one. Let's start with first word, first verse, Paul. Now I've already mentioned a little bit about him, but just for context, if you have no idea who Paul is, he was a Jewish man in the first century who was persecuting Christians, literally overseeing the killing of Christians. And as a Jewish man, he did not believe Jesus was the Messiah, God in the flesh, the Savior of the world. He was the last person you would expect to follow Jesus until one day he met Jesus in a vision and his life was radically transformed. There are some people here right now who are like Paul and you're the last person somebody would expect would become a follower of Jesus. But today is the day. Like even more than a vision, God has brought you here at this moment to hear the good news that God loves you. God has made a way for you to be reconciled to him through what Jesus has done on the cross for you. And I want to invite you today to experience radical life transformation in Jesus, just like Paul. All right, we got to move on. That's like one word. So that's Paul called. Now, you might have seen this when you were reading through this passage on your own, but did you notice how this word is repeated two other times in these three verses, right? So it's called here. Then you get to verse two. Church of God that's in Corinth, those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called. So you might circle it there to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it seems like a pretty important word, and it's only going to get more important as you read through the rest of the chapter. So I'll just give you a preview. This is not in your notes, but it is in the Bible. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9 says, God is faithful by whom you were what? You were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Then later in the chapter, verse 22, Paul starts talking about Jews and Greeks in the culture who don't believe the gospel, He's contrasting them with Jews and Greeks in the church who do believe the gospel. And listen to how he describes them. For Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are what? Called. That's how he's talking about Christians, those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. And then you get to verse 26, and Paul writes, consider your calling, brothers, and he starts talking about how they weren't wise according to worldly standards, powerful, noble birth, but God called them by his grace despite them not being any of those things. So now come back to verse one and let's ask, okay, what kind of calling is Paul talking about here? And Paul says he was called by the will of God. So this is not something he's taking credit for. This is something God did in his life which seems to square with how Paul talks about calling later. It's not because you were wise or powerful or noble. You weren't any of those things, but God called you by his will. And Paul says, he called me by his will to be an apostle. Now, we don't have time to camp out here today, but we could spend a while if we wanted, maybe go to the index in the back of our Bibles, look at the way the word apostle is used in different places. And if we did that, we would find that Paul is referring to a a special call of God in his life 
as an eyewitness of Jesus to establish the church in the first century, along with the other apostles who were disciples of Jesus when he was alive. So this is something that God called Paul to do and be that he didn't call every Christian to do and be in the same way. And that's different from how he's about to talk about calling in verse two. But before we jump to that, let me just pause here and point out how encouraging I think it is to hear Paul describe his life in relation to what God has called him to do. That's how he understands his life. And I just want to encourage you to look at your life in the same way. Like, see yourself in this passage as called by God. Not necessarily in the exact same way as Paul here, but on a variety of levels, God has called some of us at this moment to singleness, others of us at this moment to marriage. Regardless, these callings are not accidents. God is leading our lives. Think about your work. It is not an accident that you are a teacher or a politician or a student or an engineer or a contractor, which I've learned is code around here for all kinds of secret jobs. And no one else may know what your job is, but God does because he's the one who called you to it. So see your life in relation to God. Like put your name in here. Like you are Susan, called by the will of God to work in government for the glory of Jesus. You are Scott, called by the will of God to start a company overseas for the glory of Jesus. You are Doug, called by the will of God to fly planes around the world for the glory of Jesus. You are Tammy, called by the will of God to be a homemaker right here for the glory of Jesus. Whoever you are, find security in the reality that God himself is leading your life. So Paul, called by the will of God, writes, let's move on here just for the sake of time, all right? So to the church. So let's think about this word. This is really interesting, and you wouldn't know this from just reading it in English, but I'll let you in on a little inside track knowledge that if you have a good study Bible, uh, which I would recommend you might be alerted to, so the Greek word for church here literally means a company of called out ones of God. So there's a picture here of possession or belonging. So whose church is the church at Corinth? Is it Paul's? Because he started it. Is it theirs? Because now Paul's gone. Whose is it? It is God's. And the same is true in this gathering today. Church of God that is in Corinth. So that's where it's located. Now, it's interesting. So real quick pause here because we're going to see church used at different levels in 1 Corinthians. And we see it even right here in this verse. Here's what I mean by that. Maybe picture it this way. So if you were drawing this out, here you have the church in a city, in the city of Corinth. So let's picture that kind of as a circle. So church in a city, the city of Corinth. So that's who Paul's writing to. But then when we get to the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 19, we're going to read about Aquila and Prisca together with the church in their what? House. So here you've got a picture, not of church in a city, but on a smaller level of church in a house. And the likelihood is that the church in Corinth was made up of many different churches who met in houses. Now, come back to verse 2 for a minute, because here we see an even broader picture. We see the church described as all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's a picture of the church on a broader level, like church in the world, everywhere, in all places. 
And the Bible refers to all of these different levels as church. Now you might say, that's nice, David, but what does that matter? And the reason I point this out is because I think we often think about church on these two broader levels. Like when we think about the church, sometimes we're thinking about all Christians everywhere in the world. And it's right to think that way. It's also right when we think about the church to think about Bible church, for example, which is not made up of all Christians everywhere, but thousands of Christians spread out across the city, greater Washington, D.C. And obviously, side note, there's other churches in our city as well, which by the way, as long as other churches are preaching the gospel, remember, we never, ever view other churches as competition, but as partners together in the gospel. Like, don't ever, whenever you start letting the culture of competition creep into your view of the church, we're missing something very important. So biblically, you have these two broader circles when we think about church, but it's this smaller circle that I'm concerned we don't think about very much. And in the days to come, I really want to try to lead us to think more about this level, like a group that's small enough to fit in a house, a group of people who don't just sit next to each other in a large auditorium once a week, but a group that actually shares life next to each other, cares for one another, grows in Christ together, makes disciples together. These are the kinds of groups I want us to get to such that when we think about church, our first thought is actually right here, even before it's here or here. So more on that in the days to come. I just wanna show there's a biblical basis for that, for thinking about the church on these different levels, smaller and larger, and they're all important. All right, now let me come back to verse two here. And well, so let's see. All right, to the church of God that is in Corinth, two. So now we see two mentioned a second time. So what that clues us into is that the church is about to be described. Like the church is the same group of people that's about to be described. So what we're about to get is an understanding of the church from God's perspective. So what is the church? The church includes those sanctified in Christ Jesus. And then it's the same people to those called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So all those who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there you've got three descriptions of the church from God's perspective. What is the church? Or better put, who is the church? Here's God's answer. And it all starts, it revolves around, remember this word that we've already talked about, called. Church is men and women who are called by the will of God. So who is getting the credit here for forming the church? God is. Is the church a group of amazing people who have risen to a certain status by their own effort? No. It is a group of undeserving people who have been called by the gracious will of God. Let me just ask every follower of Jesus in this gathering right now a question based on what Paul goes on to say in this chapter. So there's a lot of people in the world who when they hear about Jesus and they look at the cross, Paul says they see folly. There's a lot of people who say, I don't believe Jesus is God in the flesh. I don't believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins. There's billions of people in the world who would say that. But you have heard about Jesus and you look at the cross And you don't see folly, you see forgiveness. And you have said, I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins and I love him and I trust him as Lord of my life. So let me ask you a question. Why do others look at the cross of Jesus and see folly 
while you look at the cross of Jesus and see forgiveness? Is it because you are smarter than other people? You are better, superior in some way? No. The only reason you see the forgiveness of Jesus in the cross is because of the grace of God in your life. The church is not made up of people with superior merit in them. The church is made up of people who have been saved by mercy in God. And he gets all the credit for the church, for your life, my life. So we are called to be saints. So that word literally means to be set, one who is set apart. And it's really interesting. It takes us back up to the first description because that's what the word sanctified also means, to set apart. So the church, men and women who have been set apart in Christ Jesus. Now, this is where it's meditation is, just soaking in the words, phrases. Like, what does it mean to be set apart in Christ, in Jesus? And to have your life united in Jesus, with Jesus. And this is where, as you soak this in, it just becomes life-transforming and breathtaking to realize that your life is so united with Jesus that everything that belongs to him is now available to you. This is, you say, what do you mean? Like, is that really what this is saying? Well, let me just give you a preview of where Paul's gonna end this chapter. First Corinthians chapter one, verse 30. Listen to the language here. Because of him, right here is God, because of his grace, which we just talked about, you are in Christ Jesus. Same phrase we just saw in verse two, right? Who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So all these things, belong to Jesus, and because you're in Jesus, these things now belong to you. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast what? In the Lord, in Jesus. You boast in Jesus. Do you realize what this is saying? When you are in Christ, the resources of Christ are yours. I don't think we realize this. I think if Christians realize this, it would totally change our lives. We would be boasting every day in him and just living in this reality. What Hudson Taylor said, the joy of Jesus living in you. Let me try to illustrate this. Have you ever heard of the term burging? So I'm guessing you haven't. It's a psychological term. So B-I-R-G-I-N-G, burging. It stands for basking in reflected glory. So here's how it's defined. Burging is a self-serving cognition whereby someone associates themselves with another person's success such that the other person's success feels like their own accomplishment. Basically, you so identify with somebody else who's done something awesome that you feel like you did that something awesome, though you actually had nothing to do with it feel like you did. Like we do this all the time, particularly when it comes to something like sports. So I've told you before about my uh, high school baseball career. It was not good. And you might say, well, you made the team, but that's because my team wasn't great. And my main weakness as a baseball player was I couldn't hit, which is a pretty significant weakness in baseball. Like if you're going to be a baseball player, you need to be able to hit the ball. Uh, but I couldn't hit. I'll, I'll tell you how bad I was. 
just to make sure this is no exaggeration, there was one season in high school where I was DH'd for every single game. So usually the, the pitcher can't hit, so they'll put a DH, a designated hitter in for him. Well, my coach put in a designated hitter for me, and I was the second baseman. And every single game, somebody else batted instead of me. So I played every single game of the season. My coach never let me bat until the last game of the season. This was my chance. And I went up there. I swung with everything I had in me. And that ball went about two feet. A swinging bunt. This is the only time my bat hit the ball the entire season. So keep that skill level in mind because... I loved watching baseball with my dad. And although I grew up in Atlanta, my dad was a Dodgers fan from his past. And I can remember watching with him one of the greatest moments in Major League Baseball history, at least if your dad is a Dodgers fan. It was game one of the World Series against the A's in 1988. The Dodgers had a guy named Kirk Gibson, who was their best hitter. And he was injured really bad. He could hardly walk, so he wasn't able to start this first game in the World Series. It was a close game, got to the bottom of the ninth inning. The Dodgers were down by one run. There was one man on base and there were two outs. It looked like all hope was lost for the Dodgers until guess who stepped out of dugout to bat? Kirk Gibson. Everybody was shocked. He's grimacing with every step, like limping out to the plate. He stands in the Dodgers' only hope. He's facing Dennis Eckersley, one of the greatest closing pitchers in baseball history. And the count came to three balls and two strikes, two outs. The next pitch would decide the game, arguably the World Series that year. And I want you to watch what happened with me. I show that clip to you because I remember jumping up and down in my living room when that happened. Like I can remember running and doing that arm Pump like I was Kirk Gibson myself. I was basking in reflected glory. Like I had nothing to do with Kirk Gibson. He, he had no idea who I was, still has no idea who I was. I had never met him. I certainly couldn't hit like him. But in that moment, it was like I was right there with him. Like his home run was my home run. Even though I couldn't get the ball more than two feet in front of plate. You say, what does this have to do with First Corinthians 1? Here's what it has to do with 1 Corinthians 1. So listen closely to every follower of Jesus in this gathering. I want to call you, based on 1 Corinthians chapter 1 today, to live your life basking in reflected glory. And here's what I mean by that. I know that right now, some of you feel pretty defeated. Some of you right now are walking through pretty difficult days. You're worried, you're anxious, maybe you're just tired, you're overwhelmed. Maybe you're struggling with a sin that just won't seem to go away. Maybe you're walking through suffering that is weighing you down and you don't know what to do next. You're doing everything you can, but some days, maybe most days, it feels like a swinging bunt at best. And I just want to encourage you today, straight from God's word, to lift your eyes to the one who is far greater than any injured sports player who took a victory lap around some bases. I want to encourage you to lift your eyes to Jesus. You want to talk about injured? How about crucified on a cross for your sins? Sure looked like he was defeated, dead for three days. And just when it looked like all hope was lost, 
guess who stepped out from the grave? Jesus did. He rose from the dead. He took the victory lap of all victory laps. And here's the difference for you. This Jesus is not far off from you. This Jesus is with you. He's not unfamiliar with you. He knows your name. Not only does he know your name, he knows your needs, every single one of them. And he loves you. He loves you so much. And here's the even bigger difference. Jesus has said to everyone who trusts in him, my victory is your victory. You don't have to pretend like it's yours in your living room. It is yours wherever you are. When you are weak, Jesus says, my strength is your strength. When you're confused, Jesus says, my wisdom is your wisdom. When you feel guilt, Jesus says, my righteousness is your righteousness. When you feel shame, Jesus says, my honor is your honor. When you feel hurt, Jesus says, I give you my healing. When you are distressed, when you are depressed, Jesus says, my hope is your hope. And one day when you face life's final moment for you, when all your strength and all your energy and ultimately your breath will fail you, in that moment, Jesus says, my life is your life. Christian, bask in the reflected glory of Jesus. Like, Boast in this, wake up every morning, walk through every moment, cognizant of this reality. You are in Jesus Christ and you have no reason to fear forever. And if you're not a Christian, you're wondering, how do I get in on this? The answer is right there in the text. Call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. Just call upon his name and you will have all that he offers. So will you bow your heads with me? close your eyes. I want to ask every person in this gathering right now, point blank, right where you're sitting, like, do you know Jesus as your Lord, as your Savior? That's what his name means, the one who saves us from our sins. Some of you, your heart does not resound to that question with yes. If that's the case, just see, open your eyes. God has brought you here to this moment right now be forgiven of all your sins, to be reconciled to relationship with God. Have your soul satisfied in God forever. If you want that, if you want Jesus, then I invite you just right now to call on his name. Call on his name just in your heart. Just pray right now and say, God, I know I have sinned against you. I know I'm separated from you. But today I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins and rose from the dead to give me life. So today I call on his name to save me from my sins and to lead me as Lord of my life. And when you call on his name, the Bible says you will be saved. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The 
Soul Gospel Ministries has the opportunities for anyone to volunteer in editing, producing the program, or even reviewing the broadcasts at our office. You don't have to be an expert. We are excited to teach anyone that is willing to learn. If you are interested in learning how to be an editor, producer, or even a reviewer, please contact us at 602-866-8999 or email us at heartandsoul.org at gmail.com. Coming up next is Praying for the Next Generation. 
name is Deborah Joy. I am the host of this program, Praying for the Next Generation. Do you know that when we truly praise God, something is loosed and released from heaven to earth? Acts chapter 16 verses 25 and 26 says, But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. True praise changes the atmosphere of fear to faith, sadness to joy, and bondage to freedom. As we praise Him, let's ask God to open up heaven's gate to fill us and our world with His glorious presence. Father, open up heaven's gate and pour out Your Holy Spirit upon us. You're the Lord who strengthens those crushed by despair, giving them a beautiful bouquet instead of ashes, the oil of bliss instead of tears of mourning, and the mantle of joyous praise instead of the spirit of heaviness. Our whole hearts explode with praise to you. We will tell the world about your wonderful works and your marvelous miracles. Amen. Now is the time to confess our sins and honor Him with our thanksgiving. Psalm 46 verse 10 says, Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Hebrew word for cease is rapha, which means let go, relax, be still, and to slacken. Can you hear his invitation to lay down your heavy burdens so you can daily experience them in your life? Let's pray. Father, we come before you with repentant hearts as we choose to let go of our burdens, fears, and the control of our lives. Thank you for being our resting place and oasis of heavenly peace. We trust you and submit to you as our Lord and Savior. Amen. Today's scripture for intercession is Proverbs chapter 31, verse 10, which says, An excellent wife who can find, for her worth is far above jewels. The Hebrew word for excellent is hail, which means virtuous, morally righteous, full of substance, power, strength, abilities, integrity, valiant, and mighty like an army. It is often used in connection with military prowess. This is a warring wife. As we pray for our daughters, let's believe and dream that our God will raise up a generation of virtuous women as the victorious bride of Jesus Christ who will transform our culture and our nation. Father, we cry out to you for our daughters. Fill their hearts with a divine hunger and a holy passion to pursue you wholeheartedly and overshadow them with your presence as they take great delight in you.
Lord, pour into your women of valor, your revelation truth, which is the sword of the Spirit, so they are prepared to combat the enemy in victory, and teach them to be intercessors after your own heart. Bless them to be your virtuous women who worship you in awe and wonder, and fill them with strength and wisdom so they know your heartbeat and understand your perfect ways. Deliver them from the ungodly influences in our media, entertainment, and culture that strive to convince our daughters that having perfect beauty and finding true love is based on outward adornment of elaborate hair, jewelry, and fine clothes, and in sexual attraction, immorality, and lust. Set them free from insecurity, jealousy, envy, gossip, profanity, control, and competition by the power of your precious blood. Fill their hearts with love, kindness, gentleness, peace, and compassion. Bless them to be known as a company of virtuous women with graceful beauty, royally fashioned with submission, integrity, diligence, and excellence in everything they do. Bless them to shine your glorious light and the true beauty of holiness as your bright stars in this world. Father, as you move our daughters to the front lines of our culture with their callings, talents, and giftings, fill them with the great boldness and unlimited confidence of Esther, Deborah, and Joan of Arc to declare your message as your voice of truth, righteousness, and justice to transform our society and restore it back to your original design of a God-fearing nation. We bless this generation in your holy name. Amen. Cross. 
I will ever be true It's shame and reproach gladly bear Then he'll call me someday To my home far away Where his glory forever I'll share And I'll cherish the old rugged cross Till my trophies at last I lay down now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.